You can turn now to Jonah, chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, which is the passage that we'll be looking at together this morning. It's on page uh, 775 this morning, if you have one of the Pew Bibles. Again, Jonah, chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, there are so many voices in our world today. So many things vying for our attention, vying for our allegiance We pray that this morning, as we spend time in your word, that you would help us to hear the voice that exceeds all other voices in importance, in truthfulness, in wisdom and guidance. Help us to hear from you. Help us to be diligent as we pay attention to what you have shown to us in Jonah chapter 3. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In my time in ministry, both on staff with InterVarsity, uh, doing college ministry, and then on staff here at Livingstone, I've led quite a few discussions and classes on the topic of evangelism. And one of the common questions in any discussion about evangelism, which we even asked at our summer conversation in June, is what feelings come to mind when you first think about evangelism? What feelings come to mind when you first think about evangelism? Now, you can even ask yourself that question this morning. What feelings come to mind for you when you think about evangelism? And in the many times that I've asked that question to groups, you could probably guess what the most common answer is. Fear. Fear. And I think that's a perfectly honest answer. I don't know if any of you are like me, but when I think about the prospect of evangelism, and even in moments where I've had opportunities to share the gospel, there is a fear within me. Fear about how I will be perceived, fear fear about not saying the right words, fear about people not receiving what I say well. But I think there's another answer that should rival fear that often doesn't get mentioned at all. And that's guilt. Guilt. If we're completely honest, many of us know that we should care about evangelism. Most of us know that we should share the gospel with people, but we also know that we don't often share the gospel with people. Many of our lives, including my life, are riddled with untaken opportunities, with ill-timed words, and with a general lack of evangelistic intentionality. Evangelism is one of those things we know that we should do. And so when the topic comes up, because we're not doing it, we feel guilty. But whether for fear, lack of equipping, or whatever else, even still, we don't do what God has called us to do. 
Now, if you feel like an evangelistic failure, I don't want to just get you down this morning. I think that this is a great passage for you if you feel like a failure when it comes to evangelism. And if you feel like an evangelistic rock star, then perhaps you need to be humbled a bit. Both of those hopefully will happen this morning. In our passage, we're going to see God's grace that recommissions a disobedient, runaway failure of a messenger, and a passage that gives us necessary reminders for anyone who is called to be a messenger for God, whether a preacher called to minister to a congregation, a parent called to teach their children, or any Christian who is called to be a light for the gospel in our world. And the big central idea is that the world needs God's messenger. The world needs God's messenger. We're going to look at a few different aspects of that this morning from our text. So first, the world needs a messenger recommissioned by God's grace. The world needs a messenger recommissioned by God's grace. Look with me to verses 1 and 2 of the passage. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. If those words sound familiar, it's because they should sound familiar to you. Uh, They almost perfectly parallel the words of God's commission to Jonah in Jonah chapter 1. Jonah, as a book, is split fairly evenly into two parallel halves. And this passage today is the beginning of the second half of the book of Jonah. The first half that we've already seen has been God commissioning Jonah, Jonah's response, Jonah's interaction with pagans, and then Jonah's prayer. And in that case, God gave him a commission. His response was to run. The pagans were the sailors that the Lord called to himself. And then the prayer was the prayer in the belly of the fish. What we see in our passage today is Jonah's recommissioning by God, Jonah's response the beginning of Jonah's interaction with the pagan Ninevites. And then in chapter four, we're going to see Jonah's second prayer ended by a new section that has no parallel in the beginning, which is the Lord's illustration to Jonah. So there's two very even parallel pieces to this passage. And I love that here God reinstates and recommissions Jonah by giving him the same commission he had given given him before. Jonah, in a way, had forfeited his right to be a prophet of the Lord. He had run away when God had called. He had failed to speak what God had told him to speak. But here, God, in his grace, gives him a second chance. Just think about the grace that's communicated just by the words, second time, in verse one. A second time. The first time God sent these words to Jonah, he ran. And he did everything in his power to do, to not do what God had called him to do. But here, after God has chased Jonah down, after after God has delivered Jonah from certain death and disciplined him, God gives Jonah another chance at obedience. I think this should be a great encouragement to us, especially if, like me, you're often an evangelistic failure. If you're like me, you fail all the time at God's calling to evangelism as well as God's calling to a million other things in our lives. But God is gracious to us. He's kind to us in our failings. And so often he gives us new opportunities to obey where we previously failed to do what we knew we should do. Now, I think there's a couple caveats that we need here. 
One, we need to be clear that God is free to do, to do this, to give second chances whenever he pleases. And we need to recognize that Jonah's story is not identical to ours in a lot of different ways. And there really truly are many legitimate cases where people can disqualify them from certain areas of service to God. This isn't saying that in every instance, someone should give a second chance where they had failed. And we also need to recognize that the gospel is far more than just a second chance. The gospel is way more than just, you're going to do better next time, right? But even still, God in his grace often gives us second chances. He gives us new opportunities for, for obedience. He doesn't abandon us when we fail. So even as we feel conviction over the areas where we have not obeyed the Lord, whether in the past or ways that we're doing that in the present, don't lose heart, but continue to rest on God's grace and to look to him as you seek to obey him. When you think of your failures at evangelism in the past, don't engage in evangelism now out of guilt. Engage in evangelism now because of grace, because of God's kindness to you, because God gives you new opportunities to obey. One of the great contrasts that we see between the commissioning of Jonah in chapter one and chapter three is how Jonah responded. God's words to Jonah were essentially the same, only a couple small changes, but how Jonah responded was completely different here in chapter three. Chapter one, God tells Jonah to rise and go, and Jonah rose and fled. Here in chapter three, God tells Jonah to arise and go, and what does Jonah do? He rises and he went to Nineveh. He rises and he goes. He obeys what God says. Now, this doesn't mean that all of Jonah's issues have been resolved. We're going to see in chapter four that Jonah has plenty of heart issues that still have not been dealt with. But I think sometimes we have a tendency to treat biblical characters in a way that we don't treat people that we know in a way that we don't treat ourselves. When we see someone like Jonah, and in chapter four, we see that he still has heart issues, we can say, well, clearly that means that all of the change we see in Jonah to this point must not be real. That Jonah obeying God here must just be, you know, just him doing duty, but have no heart in it or anything like that. But let's not expect something from Jonah that we don't expect from ourselves and others. We know that even when God disciplines us and changes us, that it's not that we instantly become perfect people, that all of our heart issues are dealt with in that moment. So I think it's appropriate for us to see that there has been a real change in Jonah. Something has changed where so drastically he responds different to what God has called him to do. I think that there is, even though there was admixture with sin in Jonah's heart in his prayer in chapter two, I think there was genuinely a love for God and a thanksgiving in his heart for what God had done to deliver him. So Jonah, just like us, is this mixture, this constantly living mixture and fight between what is sinful in us and what God has renewed and changed in us. So we can take Jonah's new obedience here in chapter three as an example for us to pursue new obedience when the Lord gives us new opportunities. So the world needs a messenger that's recommissioned by God's grace. But second, we need to see that the world needs a messenger who proclaims God's message. The world needs a messenger who proclaims 
God's message. I think this passage shows us two aspects of proclaiming God's message. The messenger needs to proclaim God's words and proclaim God's warning. The messenger needs to proclaim God's words and proclaim God's, proclaim God's warning. So let's look at the first of those. The messenger needs to proclaim God's words. When we're looking at the beginning of Jonah chapter 1 and the beginning here of Jonah chapter 3, and the similarity between the calls, the one big thing that is different is that in in chapter three here, at the end of verse two, we see that God tells Jonah to call out against Nineveh the message that I tell you. Those are words that should have been assumed in the original call, but they're words that God makes explicit here to Jonah in his second calling to him, his recommission. Call out against Nineveh the message that I tell you. Declaring the message that God has given to Jonah is an an essential part of of Jonah's role as a prophet of the Lord. O. Palmer Robertson, one of my favorite theologians, he's really helpful when it comes to the role of the prophet in the Old Testament. He writes, the person of the prophet substitutes for the presence of the almighty God himself. The person of the prophet substitutes for the presence of the almighty God himself. In a way, the prophet's role is to represent God to the people, to speak on behalf of God. I think there's a common misconception about prophets and what prophets are called to do. We often, I think, think that the primary thing that a prophet was called to do was predict the future. And there's certainly an aspect of predicting the future in the role of prophets. But that's not what is essential about the role of a prophet. When we think of prophecy in our favorite movies or our favorite books, whether it's Star Wars or Harry Potter or whatever book or movie has prophecies in it, we think of prophecies and then we think of predictions. Prophecies are predictions. But when we think about biblical prophecy, we need to think about more than just predictions. Prediction is a part of biblical prophecies, for sure, but it's not, that, not all that biblical prophecy is, and it's not the main function of prophecy in Scripture. I think this is one of the main problems with some Christian movements that spend all of their time trying to decipher hidden codes in Scripture to figure out what is exactly going to happen whenever they look at prophetic books. They spend all their time trying to view it only through the lens of prediction instead of what it really is, which is proclamation. Prophecy is proclamation. Robertson is helpful with this too. He makes a distinction that other people have made as well between foretelling and forthtelling. Many times we only think of prophecy as foretelling, foretelling the future. When in reality, prophecy is primarily forthtelling. It is speaking forth the word of God, whether it contains prophecy or whether it contains foretelling or prediction or not. And he writes, to quote him again, the essence of prophecy was not determined by the predictive element, but by the nature of the prophet's utterance as being a revelation from God. So prophecy is not just the type of thing that is said. Prophecy is who the prophet is speaking for. That what he is speaking is a revelation from God. That it's the words of God himself spoken through the prophet. 
And that's why it's so essential that what Jonah speaks is the message that God gives him. Jonah isn't called to speak his own opinions or ideas, to say what he wants to say to the people of Nineveh. His job is to say what God wants him to say to the people of Nineveh. Now, I'm not a prophet. You're not a prophet. If that's news to you, we can talk later. You are not a prophet. I'm not a prophet in the way that Jonah was a prophet. But we may be prophetic. We're not prophets, but we may be prophetic. Now, let me explain what I, uh, what I mean by that with my last quote, promise, last quote from Robertson. While a contemporary preacher may be prophetic, he is not prophesying in the biblical sense of the word. Just as a preacher today may be apostolic, but not an apostle, so he may be prophetic without being a prophet. What that means is there is a similarity between what I am doing right now as a minister of the gospel and what Jonah was calling to do. But there's also an essential difference. Right now, as I'm preaching God's word to you, I am here to stand in a way in the place of the Lord speaking to his people. I'm meant to faithfully proclaim what God has revealed in his word. But I'm not revealing to you anything new from the Lord. My job is to not have some fancy new prophetic utterance. My job is to go back to what God has already said in his word and to help you to understand what he said in the past. The role of a prophet in the Old Testament was to give new revelation for God. But really, we really are speaking on behalf of God in a true sense and something that we need to take seriously. In the historic reform tradition, there's a conviction that the preaching of God's word really is God speaking to his people. I know I emphasized this last summer when we looked at Jesus as a prophet. It's why we sing the song, Speak, O Lord, before we have sermons occasionally. We don't ask that God would only speak when his word is read and then that God would just help everybody to listen to James well. We ask that God would speak to us which is why we take preaching so seriously. We are recognizing that it is a speaking of of God's word to his people. It's not a time for hobby horses or comedy routines or random opinions. Preachers, like prophets, are called to proclaim God's word, not their own. So pray for me. Pray that I would be able to do this well, or Bill or Chris, whoever is preaching here on any Sunday morning, that we would be faithful messengers for God. But there's also an application for you in this. In whatever capacity that you are called to teach, whatever capacity you're called to bring the gospel to our city, we need to know that we are called to speak God's message. When you think of any evangelistic conversation you may have, what needs to be foremost on our mind is the desire to to correctly represent the message of the gospel a desire to correctly represent the message of the gospel that God has given to us. Our primary motivation should not be telling people what they want to hear or what we want them to hear, but what God wants them to hear. So this brings up a second aspect of this. The messenger must proclaim God's words, but also proclaim God's warning. The message God gave to Jonah to declare was a warning. In verse 4, Jonah calls out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. It was a message that Nineveh's evil ways had been noticed by God, that it meant their imminent destruction. 
It was a warning that was meant to call them to repentance, which something is something that we see that they actually do here. And this can't have been a comfortable message for Jonah to declare in Nineveh. Again, reminder, Nineveh was a city that was known for its violence, a city that was known for its brutality against its enemies. And here Jonah, coming from one of the enemy nations, comes in and says, you're going to be destroyed. What a fearful thing to say to this city. You don't know how they're going to respond. You don't know if they're going to string you up and kill you. But Jonah still proclaims this warning to the people. A significant part of preaching and evangelism is warning. There's bad news that prepares for the good news. Our message needs to be more than only God loves you. The message that we proclaim speaks about sin, speaks about judgment, so that the gospel would talk about forgiveness and talk about salvation. I know I've mentioned this before, but as my family would go on summer vacations every year, my mom would always tell stories to us and read books to us and have books on tape about horror stories of things that could go wrong in the places that we went to. When we went to Glacier National Park, she read us stories about bear attacks. And I mentioned a couple weeks ago when we went up to Lake Superior, she played the song of the Edmund, the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald for us, reminding us of the terrible waves of Lake Superior. When we went to the Grand Canyon, she read to us story after story of people who got too close and slipped and fell. But why did my mom do that? Why did my mom warn us so much and scare us so much about the places that we were going? Was it so that she, she would just kill the fun for us and that we wouldn't enjoy these national parks? No, it's so that we wouldn't go too close to the edge, so that we wouldn't fall off, so that we wouldn't walk up and try to pet a grizzly bear. My mom knew that we were foolish little boys. There were four boys. She knew our capacity for doing unintelligent things. So she warned us, but she did it because she loved us. When we warn people with the message of the gospel, we're not doing that to be killjoys, to stop people from having fun. It's supposed to be an act of love to warn people of the coming judgment and to tell them the good news of the grace of God and Jesus that saves from that judgment. We have to recognize that at some point, if we love someone and we know they're in imminent danger, that we have a responsibility to speak. So a messenger is called to proclaim God's message, his words and his warning. Thirdly, the world needs a messenger that is confident in God's power. The world needs a messenger confident in God's power. Jonah travels to Nineveh. We see in this passage that Nineveh is a huge city. It says it's three days journey across. And there's a ton of debate among scholars and commentary people about exactly what that means. Does it mean it was three days in diameter? Does it mean it was a three-day journey around? Does it mean that if you were going to go and proclaim to the city to reach all of the main parts of the city, it would be a three-day job? I think that's probably where I would stand, that it would take three days for him to go and actually preach to the city. But either way, whichever way you take that, it's the main point is that Nineveh is a huge city. And to get a sense of the craziness of this call, imagine that I call one of you to Sam, I call Sam to move to Madison. And I say, Sam, why don't you go convert the city of Madison? All right, now imagine he moves there. 
And we go down 10 years later and we check in on the progress that Sam has made. What percentage of the city of Madison do you think Sam will have converted in 10 years time? Hopefully some, right? In our five years here at Livingstone, have we converted the 60,000 citizens of Oshkosh? No. The Lord calls Jonah to go to this huge, wicked, godless city to proclaim God's message. And what happens in one day, a single day, Jonah travels into the city one day, and verse five, the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. This shows the magnitude and the immediacy of their response. And there's two parts of this improbable response, faith and repentance. First, they believed God. Literally in the Hebrew, there's the preposition in, in this phrase. And I'm not totally sure why the ESV and other translations leave out the word in. Literally, they believed in God. It's more than just believing what was said by, by Jonah on behalf of God. They believed in the Lord. And second, they repented. They fasted. They put on sackcloth. These are signs of sorrow and of humility. And next week, we're going to be looking primarily at Nineveh's response. Here in verse 5, it just gives us a little picture, gives us the summary, and then verses 6 through 10 zoom out and give us a clearer picture of exactly what went on in the city of Nineveh. But we have to see that what they did is they believed and they repented from the greatest of them to the least. The entire city, the king down to the poor people, they responded to the message that Jonah had given. In any normal scenario, is this at all possible? Is this what we expect when we go and do the work of evangelism? No. And I'm not saying that it's actually what's going to happen every time when we go do evangelism. But there needs to be the confidence that it doesn't depend on us, that God is free to do far more than we expect that he could possibly ever do, even through the simple words of his people, through the simple phrase from Jonah, destruction is coming. They turn and they turn to the Lord. We should have confidence that God can work through the gospel. A few of the men who were at our last church men's retreat, not the uh, one at Green Lake, but our, the one we do individually as a church, uh, a lot of those men probably know the fact that I am very bad at basketball. I'm really bad at basketball. I'm okay at some other sports. I can throw a Frisbee pretty well, the football pretty good. Andrew's saying you're okay. I'm, I'm really bad at basketball. If I am shooting around and I hit the rim on a three-point attempt, I like to joke, do I get one point for that? Because I so rarely, I so commonly just completely airball whenever I shoot. It's, it's pretty bad. I can do layups, I guess, and play defense, but I cannot shoot the ball. Now, imagine that I'm in a basketball game at another church men's retreat, and we put together a team of men from Livingstone Church, and we are going to go up against the men from Emmaus Road Church, and we're coming towards the end of a close game, and the game comes down to me. It comes down to me. Am I going to make the shot? Am I going to be the person to put that ball through that hoop to get us the win? Will we have any confidence that we are going to win that game? Andrew, stop giving a thumbs up. You know that I'm going to miss. No, I would, ha I would have no confidence 
and our ability to win that game if I have to take that shot. Now imagine on some random scenario that we're at Green Lake, we're playing basketball, and Michael Jordan in his prime walks through the doors and offers to join our team for the last 30 seconds of the game. We're down by one point, close game. We pass the ball into my prime Michael Jordan. Do you think we're going to win that game? Yeah, we're going to win that game. Sometimes my own discouragement about evangelism or any kind of ministry stems from the fact that I think it all depends on me. I think it all depends on me. And if it's up to me, I really don't have a lot of confidence that what I'm going to do is going to succeed. But it doesn't all depend on us. It doesn't. It depends on God. Our confidence in evangelism stems from the fact that what we saw last week is true. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation is his. So whether zero people respond or a whole city responds, it's not ultimately because of us. I think it's significant that there are faithful prophets in the Bible, like Isaiah, who saw little to no visible fruit from their ministry. Well, with Jonah, this runaway, disobedient prophet who's called back to the Lord, who comes in and says just a simple thing to the people of Nineveh, that for him, he sees an entire city convert. An entire city respond and repent. What a great reminder that God is free to do as little or as much through the preaching of the gospel as he pleases. It's not up to us. Let's depend on him. So the world needs a messenger recommissioned by God's grace, who proclaims God's message, and who is confident in God's power. And lastly, the world needs a messenger who knows God's heart. The world needs a messenger who knows God's heart. As we've been studying through the book of Jonah, the issues that are in Jonah's heart become clearer and clearer to us. And they become most clear in just a couple of weeks in Jonah chapter four, when we dive in there. But then opposite that, throughout the book of Jonah, another thing becomes clear to us. God's heart. God's heart, particularly for the nations, for these pagan sailors, for Nineveh, wicked Nineveh. We see God's heart. And if you have an ESV translation on you, I want you to look at the passage. And I want you to look at verse three. There's a note there that will point you down to the bottom of your page. In my ESV, it's note number one. And you'll see that the phrase... Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, could be more literally translated, and the ESV helps us with this. Nineveh was a great city to God. Nineveh was a great city to God. Now, some translations, like the ESV, take the phrase to God to just mean the superlative, that Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. But I think that the context of the book of Jonah makes it more likely that this is a reference to God's stance towards the Ninevites. That the city of Nineveh was important to God, despite the fact that they were a wicked, rebellious city. And I think it highlights two things for us. That this city was great to God. It highlights God's ownership of Nineveh and God's care for Nineveh. God's ownership for ownership of Nineveh and God's care for Nineveh. And I don't think, they, don't think that these are things that Jonah understood yet, 
but I think the author wants us to understand these. So first, God's ownership of Nineveh. For a prophet who's from Israel like Jonah, he probably assumed that since Israel was God's nation, that God had no sort of relationship with any other, with any other nation. But like the book of Jonah has already emphasized for us and continues to emphasize, God is the maker of the whole world. And that means that the whole world belongs to God. The boundaries of God's domain and God's dominion do not mirror the boundaries of Israel and Judah. Even though the nations raged, even though the nations rebelled, they did not at one moment cease to be under the domain of God. And this is still the case today. Part of our motivation and drive for evangelism and missions is that the whole earth is the Lord's. It's his. And it also emphasizes God's care for Nineveh and God's care for the nations. Nineveh was a wicked, violent, brutal, godless society. They were deserving of God's judgment and God's destruction. Yet Nineveh was also important to God. God's recommissioning of Jonah shows God's persistence in bringing the message to these people. And in chapter four, we're really going to dive into this question of, does our heart mirror God's heart more or Jonah's heart when it comes to our heart towards the lost? Does our heart look like Jonah's? Does our heart look like God's? But for now, it's essential for us to recognize that the heart of evangelism needs to flow from a conviction that the people you evangelize are important to God, that God cares for them. And when we do that in our evangelism, even when we say hard things, what we say will be marked by love and compassion, not by a competitive spirit or a mean spirit, not by a desire to go and wreck those non-Christians and tear apart their arguments and go destroy them. Our job, when we recognize that God cares for these people, will be to win them, to love them enough to warn them and say the hard things that need to be said, to love them enough to bring the message of the gospel to them. Our heart needs to mirror the heart of our Lord toward the people that he sends us to. This passage teaches us so much about the work of ministry and evangelism and even just a life of obedience to God. It reminds us of our reliance on God's grace, our need to be faithful to God's word, our confidence in the power of God, and the need of knowing and mirroring God's heart in evangelism. But even more than just showing us how we ought to be a messenger for the Lord, this passage speaks about a greater messenger. Whether our first feeling when we think about evangelism is fear or guilt or something else, We all have an acute awareness and understanding of the fact that we don't often live as God's messengers in the way that we should. We often fail. But the good news is that though we may never be better than the wayward prophet Jonah, there is a prophet who is better than Jonah. Jesus himself, God himself, came as a man. And we rightly emphasize Jesus' death and his resurrection for our salvation. But let's not also underestimate that Jesus came to preach. Jesus came to preach. Mark chapter 1, the introduction to Jesus' ministry, verses 14 through 15, says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee 
proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus preached. He warned, repent and believe. Later in verse 38, he says to his disciples, I think this is very, very insightful for us. Jesus says, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also. For this is why I came out. We need to go to those cities so that I may preach to them. Because that's why I'm here. That's why I am here doing ministry. I came to preach. Jesus came to preach the gospel. And this is the emphasis of the passage that we read from Luke chapter 11 in our New Testament reading. You can actually turn there with me. Luke chapter 11. We looked at Luke 11, 29 through 32 and the sign of Jonah. Give me a moment as I turn there as well. In Luke chapter 11, what we see is the sign of Jonah, which is something that we saw last week in, in Matthew chapter 12. In Matthew 12, one of the main emphases on the sign of Jonah was Jonah's three days and nights in the belly, in the belly of the fish, and how that pointed forward to Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection. But there's something beyond that to the sign of Jonah that Luke 11 makes really clear for us. There's another emphasis. In Luke 11, the sign of Jonah refers to Jonah's preaching and Jonah's preaching to the lost and to the Gentiles. Even as Jonah preached to the Ninevites, Jesus came to preach and to preach repentance, to not only bring the good news to Israel, but with the goal that the good news would go out to the nations. The conclusion of the passage in Luke 11 drives the big idea home for us. So look at verse 32. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Nineveh, this wicked city, repented when a little reluctant Jonah preached a simple message. What excuse do the crowds have for not listening to Jesus, who is so much greater than the prophet Jonah? What excuse do we have? We have the clear testimony of Jesus' words and his life in the scriptures. We know the warnings of the Bible. We know the promises. We know the gospel message. The wicked Ninevites will rise up with us and condemn us if we don't repent and believe in Jesus, the greater messenger, the greater Jonah. But even as we must listen to Jesus ourselves, the greater prophet, let's also place our confidence in evangelism upon Jesus, the greater prophet. We need to remember that when people hear the gospel and when they respond, it's not ultimately because they heard us. It's not ultimately because our words were so perfect, our persuasion was so impeccable and flawless, because our demeanor was confident and kind. Paul himself told the Corinthian church that he was with them in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and his speech and his message were not implausible words of wisdom. When people hear and people respond, it's the work of God by the Holy Spirit. And when they respond, the hearer has heard more than us. They've heard more than my voice speaking from up front. 
They've heard more than your voice bringing the gospel to them. They have heard the voice of Jesus, the voice of their shepherd, the voice of the true great prophet. Ultimately, as evangelists, as preachers, as disciple makers, we will never truly be the greater Jonah. We will always require the patience a grace of God as we sometimes succeed, but often fail. Our greatest privilege in speaking the message of God is not that we are going to be better than Jonah. The great privilege is that we get to point men and women to Jesus, the greater Jonah, that they might hear from him, not from us, that they may hear and respond to the words of life and that they would believe and repent. Let's pray. God, we do thank you for your grace to us. That we often fail to speak faithfully the words you've given us. We fail to be confident in your power. We often fail to mirror your heart in our work, in our ministry, in our evangelism, whatever you call us to do. So we're grateful for your grace, that day by day you give us new opportunities to obey you. And so we pray that you would help us to do that, to take the opportunities, but to not ultimately put our hope in us, in doing better tomorrow, in finally being the best evangelists we can be, even as we desire to do that, Lord. Our hope is in your work, in your strength, in Jesus, the great prophet who came and revealed to us into the world, the words of life. We pray that people would hear him, that they would hear the voice of the great shepherd and the great prophet, and that they would respond. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our good shepherd, and our good Lord, and the great prophet. Amen.